I don't know if I mentioned this before. This is a book by Amir Sarfati, uh, Revealing Revelation. Uh, if you just want a good, simple read that gives you uh, some really good insights and is really sound uh, all the way through, I've not gone through the entire thing, but probably half of it, uh, but I think it's very, very sound. He, he obviously does a lot of research, and uh, he also, I can tell by the people he quotes, uh, that he uses resources that are reliable, solid people. So, revealing revelation, if you want to look at that, feel free after class. Uh, anything else, Nan, I need to mention? I think that's all. Uh, we had the privilege of giving a report to our church Wednesday night on our trip to India and Nagaland. And... Uh, it was really enjoyable to share with the people there, so we had a great time at that. Uh, we're going to be tonight in Revelation chapter 9. Uh, hopefully you all have the notes. Uh, obviously I won't be able to hit on everything that's in the notes uh, as we go through. Um, these are really for you to take home and study. And I'm actually in the process. Some of you can see the blue and the yellow marks on them. And those are areas that I'm continuing to refine with my editors, so just ignore those. But I will bring in some things that are not in the notes, so you may want to have a pen handy so that you can jot those down. What page are we on? Uh, we would be on page 33 if our copies are all the same. What they are? Revelation 9. All right, so let's just pray once again and ask God to bless the time we spend in His Word, and then we will launch into it. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the privilege and the opportunity of gathering together, and we know that this is something that You have commanded us to do, that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. Father, we long for that day when our Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, and call us to himself. But at the same time, we realize, as Peter warns us, that we should not be too antsy about when these things are going to happen, because the reason for your delay is the salvation of souls. So, Father, we just pray as we open your word this evening that God the Holy Spirit would provide us the insight and illumination that we need to understand and then to go out and apply the truths that we're about to study in our lives. Let everything that's said and done, our thoughts, our words, our actions, be to the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 So last week we went through chapter 8, kind of went through it quickly. Um, and in chapter 8, in verse 1, you have the opening of the seventh seal, which begins the seven trumpets. And then, of course, we're going to see that we, when we get to the seventh trumpet, uh, it is going to begin the seven vials or the seven bowls. <clears throat> and it can be a little bit confusing to people, and I think it's important to explain the book of Revelation in the first place. It's not the revelation of St. John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what it's revealing is the aspect of him that we don't see when we read the Gospels. We read the Gospels and we see him meek and we see him humble and we see him compassionate and kind. 
But we know that there's a time, as we see in chapter 6, where the lamb turns into the lion. And so Revelation is the judgment that is ultimately coming on the earth. And I'm sure that every one of us have had times when we've made a statement similar to, when is God going to do something about this? How long is he going to let the evil go? Uh, how long before the wicked are judged? How long before those who believe are going to be delivered? And so on and so forth. Um, well, Revelation is a reminder to us all that Christ is on the throne and he is directing history toward God's intended end. We don't always understand all of it and we may not always like all of it, but we need to understand God is just a little bit smarter than we are. Uh, and he is working things that we do not understand. And I find in myself, and one of the things that troubles me probably more than anything else, is when I hear about child trafficking. Um, and, you know, it just is such a burden on my soul. And I pray for those children. And I cry out to God and I say, when are you going to bring this to an end? When are you going to judge these people? But we need to understand that he knows what he's doing and his timing is going to be perfect. As we go through the book of Revelation, I think a couple of things that trip people up. One, people try to uh, put everything into a perfect flow, a perfect chronology. Uh, I don't think we can really do that. Uh, for one reason, we have four interludes in the book. So we went through up to uh, chapter 5, and then in chapter 6, we have the six seals, and immediately in chapter 7, we have an interlude. And the interlude is actually backing up and explaining what God's doing with the Jewish people at the beginning of the tribulation period. Maybe I can just make a short little chart here that sometimes helps us from a perspective point of view history is divided between eternity past and eternity future the central focus of human history is the coming of Christ and the work he accomplished on the cross and of course after that he was buried raised and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the father Psalm 110 verse 1 tells us that as the Son entered into the heavenly throne room, the Father said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's mil <clears throat> excuse me, military terminology for complete and utter defeat. So there will be the day that our Lord will come as the warrior, and he is going to win the victory. With the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit came down and began a new age of history, which we call the church age. Church age is going to extend from the coming of the Holy Spirit to the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church is going to happen before the tribulation. Now that may give you a lot of relief. Some people it gives a lot of angst or a lot of anger because they say, why should Christians get out of the suffering of the tribulation? Well, the only people that could ask that question are people who are ignorant of history. The church has suffered throughout the past 2,000 years. The persecutions, the horrendous sufferings, beatings, imprisonments, starvation, uh, death by every means 
has gone on and continues to go on all around the world. As a matter of fact, unknown to us because our media refuses to uh, report on it, there are more people being killed as we speak tonight than ever before in history. Just when we came out of India, there was a horrendous persecution that broke out. 10,000 Christians were driven from their home. Just imagine tonight, if we were gathered here, we're in a meeting, but imagine that you have nothing. You'll walk down the street after the class to your little hut that might be half the size of this room, and that's all you own. And then suddenly, you are driven from your home, driven into the forest or driven into the fields. Your house is burned down. Everything that you have is gone, but you're not the only one. Thousands and thousands of others are there with you. That's the kind of condition that developed while we were there in India. Just after getting home, I was speaking with my pastor friend from Pakistan, and he said that uh, he had just heard a couple of days ago that a huge persecution broke out against Christians in Pakistan. So this is happening all the time, and uh, we need to understand the church has suffered plenty, and the church has paid her dues. So the rapture of the church leaves us with a seven-year period of time that we know as the tribulation. In the Old Testament, it's called the time of wrath. Here's something that you may not have thought about. Two-thirds of all prophecy, they say that the Bible is about two-thirds prophecy. Two-thirds of all of that prophecy is on that seven-year period of time. There is more prophecy in the Bible on the tribulation period than any other period in human history because it is going to be so absolutely catastrophic from an earthly point of view and so absolutely victorious from the standpoint of Christ. This is where God begins to pour out his wrath on the earth. When I'm in Alabama next weekend, I'm teaching through the book of Romans. I'm teaching on the transformed life, but you can't really teach on the transformed life without going all the way through the book of Romans. So we're gonna hit the high points through the book of Romans. And one of the things that we find as we work through the book of Romans is the outpouring of the wrath of God. And Paul talks about it a lot. Uh, he starts out in Romans 1.18. You'll remember the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he goes on into a long list of the consequences of rebelling against the truth and turning away from Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Those consequences in themselves are wrath. God allows us to be judged by the results of our decisions, by the effects of our actions. But that is the consequential wrath that is built into uh, his government of the world. What we're talking about in the tribulation is the outpouring of the direct wrath of God on man. So as we go through the tribulation period, seven years, and it's talked about again all the way through the Old Testament, uh, Daniel, probably one of the uh, dominant prophetic passages in the Old Testament, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It's known as the 70th week of Daniel. But in this tribulation period, we have seven years divided in half. We know that halfway through the Antichrist 
is going to enter into the temple in Jerusalem and claim to be God. And that's going to inaugurate the, uh, what's called the Great Tribulation. You'll remember when we started our study, we looked at Matthew 24, and in Matthew 24, we actually have a perfect outline of the tribulation period. Tribulation, abomination of desolation, great tribulation, and then second coming. So there are many, many passages that line up together as to what's going to be happening. But when we come to the book of Revelation, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is very, very heavy on several things. Number one, signs. You'll notice again and again as you go through the book, John talks about signs, which is very interesting because when you go to the Gospel of John, what do you have? You have the eight signs of Jesus, starting with the turning of water into wine, and then, of course, the eighth and the greatest, his resurrection from the dead. John, who wrote the Gospel, writes the book of Revelation, and it's full of signs, and we're going to see a lot of those signs as we go along through the book. Secondly, it's a book that is built around pictures. It's a very pictorial book. It's almost like a child's picture book in a very scary way, if you want to think about it. If you, if you consider really dwelling on some of the pictures that were given, um, it's, it's very graphic and it's, it could be very, very uh, frightening in a sense. But in the cycles of judgment that are going on in the book of Revelation, we need to be very careful not to try to pinpoint everything and nail it all down because the book is not to be taken that way. The book is designed to give you and I one great major uh, response or understanding, and that is Jesus Christ is going to reign. He is going to judge. He is going to claim this earth, which he died for. He paid the price on the cross, and he is going to come and claim that which is rightfully his, and there are those who don't want him to claim it. We're going to see some of them tonight. There is a spiritual war that's going on behind the scenes. It rages around us all the time. Every time we come across human evil, human sorrows, human suffering, what we're seeing are actually the physical evidences of that spiritual war that is raging behind the scenes all the time. And so there's going to be opposition. Satan and his forces are going to try to take, keep Christ from claiming what is rightfully his. And so it's going to be a battle. So here we go. Revelation chapter 9. The last verse of Revelation chapter 8, if you'll remember in verse 13, John says, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice. Now, there's debate about this, but I'm convinced that this angel is actually proclaiming this to the world, and I believe the people of the world are going to be able to hear it. And what is he saying? Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Now this is after massive devastation. This is after we've already seen at least one-third of the population of the world killed. And now he's saying things are going to get worse. Woe, woe, woe. We've mentioned the word woe. It's a word of tremendous grief, anxiety, and warning. Because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So get this. The angel says, 
there are three things that are about to happen that are really terrible. And that's before we even get to the seven vials, which are the outpouring of the worst of all of it. So that's the introduction to chapter 9. In the first 11 verses, we have the fifth trumpet. The fifth trumpet, the first woe. Verse 1 says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven fall to earth. I take this star to be Satan. Um, he has the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, and if you go over to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, you'll see what I believe is a parallel passage where he is ultimately cast out of heaven. He, he uh, is cast down to the earth. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, star is a common designation for angels. You remember in the book of Job that it says when God created the heavens, the earth, the morning stars sang for joy. So that is a reference to the angels. So a star <clears throat> fell from heaven to earth and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, the bottomless pit, the Hebrew or the Greek is Abusan, uh, the abyss, uh, or you can refer to it as bottomless pit is referred to seven times in the book of Revelation. It's going to come up again and again. You might want to jot down four things that are not in your notes regarding the abyss, in addition to the fact that it's used seven times in Revelation. Number one, the abyss is the place of demons. It is the place of incarcerated demons. You might remember in Luke 8 and verse 31, Jesus came upon the demons... Uh, that were indwelling the man and they went by the name Legion because there were so many and they pleaded with him, do not cast us into the abyss, the Abusan. Don't cast us into the abyss. So he cast them into the pigs and even pigs can't stand demons so they went and drowned themselves. So that shows how bad demonic possession would be. So that's Luke 8 and verse 31. Secondly, it is the abode of the beast. We're going to see shortly in Revelation 11:7, the beast is going to come up out of the bottomless pit. He is apparently a super angel that is confined to the bottomless pit at the present time. Many believe that he is the one who led the revolt in Genesis 6, where the sons of God left their own habitation and took wives of earthly humans. But at any rate, the beast will come up out of the bottomless pit. Third, it will be future the prison of the devil. After the second coming of Christ, you'll remember there's a thousand years of peace and blessing on the earth, and the devil is incarcerated. So Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3 the devil is going to be chained in the bottomless pit. And then fourth, the abyss possibly equates to another place called Tartarus. Tartarus is mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 as a prison of super angels that rebelled. Again, we believe the ones in Genesis 6. Um, some suggest that the abyss is actually the chasm between the place called torments 
and the place called Abraham's bosom. You'll remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In between was a great chasm. Many call that the abyss. And then down at the bottom, Tartarus. I've never been there, so I can't give you any further information, uh, but they're somehow related. Okay? So the star falls, takes the key to the bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came on the earth. You have to think of this from the standpoint of ancient people. One of the great plagues they feared was the plague of locusts because locusts destroyed everything. Locusts meant famine, devastation, destruction, and death. So they were like locusts, and to them was given power, as if locusts aren't bad enough, as the scorpions of the earth have power. There are some very nasty scorpions in the Middle East. We have some very nasty ones down on the southern border. I'm not sure exactly what kind we have right here uh, in central Arizona, uh, but I knew, do know that down in along the Texas, New Mexico, and Mexican border, there are some really, really nasty scorpions. Um, one report that I read of a boy that was stung by a scorpion, he went into immediate convulsions, uh, frothing at the mouth, going rigid, shaking, everything else until they could get him to help. Thankfully, I've never been stung by a scorpion, seen plenty of them, but by the grace of God, I've been delivered so far. So imagine now you've got two things that the people hate, and they're rolled up into one. Demonic beings that are like locusts in their destructiveness and like scorpions in the pain and the anguish that they cause. It says they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or the green thing or any tree. We've already seen that a third of these have been burned up. But only the men that do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You'll remember in chapter 6, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists received the seal of God. And evidently those that they lead to Christ uh, are going to have that same seal. What a comfort it is for you and I to know. As a matter of fact, hold your place here because it's such a beautiful, precious passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Sometimes just these simple little short snippets of verses can put so much into perspective in our thinking. So Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 13, Paul writing to these Gentile believers, notice carefully, in Him, that is in Jesus Christ, you also trusted. Get the order here, because while we can't always get the order of Revelation, we can get this order very easily. In Him, you trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Christ died for your sins. Those who believe in him have eternal life. Come to me, all you who labor. You know, as the gospels proclaim, people hear it and they respond in faith. In whom also, having believed, that is, 
After you heard, you believed, and as a result of your belief, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What does all that mean? That means that when you hear the gospel and you respond to the message, the offer of eternal life by faith in Christ, you respond in faith. God the Holy Spirit seals you with the seal of God. Now we're going to find out later on. We've got two witnesses that are going to show up in chapter 11 and they're going to have the seal of God and they're going to testify for a certain period of time and then they're going to get killed. Having the seal of God is no guarantee you can't be hurt. What it is is a guarantee that you can't be hurt outside the perfect plan of God. It's not a guarantee that you can't be killed, but it is a guarantee of the fact that you can't be killed until your task is finished. So having the seal of God not only provides for us the protection of God until the fulfillment of our plan, but the, the verbs fragizo is a word that actually we use the phrase all the time. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Signed, we have, we have the mark of God. We have the mark of the Father on us. Sealed, that is we're protected. Delivered, we're going to make it to our ultimate destination. So this is where the, we get the idea of eternal security. Why are we eternally secure? Because we try really hard, right? Because we come close to perfection. Because we're better than other people. No. We are secure because of the finished work of Christ applied to us through the Holy Spirit. So very simple. How gracious of God. The son of the pastor that we work with in India made this comment. How gracious of God. Because I had taught a class on becoming as little children to receive Christ and he said how gracious of God that he would make it so simple even a child could understand and yet with that simple childlike faith God goes to work to provide us a, a new creature in Christ a new destiny security until we get there so the idea of the seal is quite important and here in Revelation 9 these demonic creatures are not able to hurt those that are sealed. But to those that are not sealed, it's going to be pretty nasty. Verse 5, they were not uh, given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. The question comes up, does this mean that if you got stung by one of these creatures, you suffer for five months, or does this mean that the Creatures are going to be unleashed on the earth for five months. John doesn't tell us. I leave that to your imagination. But people are going to suffer for five months. It says their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Again, I've not experienced that, but I, from people that have, I've heard that it's pretty horrible. Verse 6, I want you to notice this. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. I mean, how horrible is it going to be that people are trying to kill themselves and can't? He goes into a description of the locusts. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. 
On their heads were crowns of something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions. There were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. They had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both of them uh, mean destroyer. Uh, and uh, probably this is one of Satan's archangels. This would be a very, very high... You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and world rulers and so on and so forth. Satan has a hierarchy. And this would apparently be one of his top generals, if you want to refer to it in that way. Uh, you have uh, examples in your notes there at the bottom, beginning at the bottom of verse 34, what these various figures uh, could imply based on other scriptures. Horses prepared for battle, compared to Joel 2.4, a picture of power and, uh, of course, danger. Crowns speak of ranks. Uh, again, going back to the principalities. Faces of men is often used in Scripture to refer to intelligence. Uh, hair like women's hair, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11.15 and the Song of Solomon 7.5 that a woman's hair is her glory. So here we have both the frightening and yet the alluring or the appealing uh, picture. Teeth of lions. I've seen lions up close. They have big, big teeth and they can crush you uh, with almost no effort. You remember Satan goes about as a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. Breastplates of iron, irresistible advance. The wings, of course, speaking of rapid assault. And then, of course, the sting of their tails, which is very interesting that in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and 56, Paul talks about death as the sting of sin. The sting of sin. And, of course, they have a demonic king over them. So there's 11 verses of one trumpet, one woe. Things are going to get so bad on the earth, people are going to try to kill themselves and be prevented from dying. I don't even know what that's going to look like. But now think of this. It's just the first woe. It's just the beginning. You know, if the book of Revelation should do nothing else to us and for us, it ought to cause us to realize that we're rubbing shoulders with people every day that are going to experience this. I believe that we're close enough in history, and especially as we look at what's going on in the world today, we see all of this coming together. You know, people always say, well, that's what they said 100 years ago. You know what, 100 years ago, that's what they said 100 years before that. You know what, 200 years ago, they couldn't have even imagined, they would think we're already in it. It's so bad. So we should be compelled to do whatever we can to get the message out there. And you know what? A lot of us, I'm not, it's funny that God put me in the position of teaching because I'm not a public type person. I tend to be a little bit of a recluse. I tend to be more uh, withdrawn. Uh, I tend to prefer to sit at the back of the room. Um, some of us don't have 
say Doug's personality. Doug could witness to a stop sign, right? Some people are just that way. But you know what? God gifts some people with that and maybe not others. But you know what? I can pray for my neighbors. And I can pray for God to give me an opportunity to open my mouth. And the amazing thing is, when we pray for that opportunity, it'll come. And we may say, well, I, I flubbed it. I didn't say it right. I, I wasn't as clear. Look, don't worry about it. If you name the name of Christ, you have just put in front of them a big beacon going off and on saying this is the answer to life. We can give tracts to people. We can give coins to people. Uh, you know, so many ways that we can, we can support those who are the ones that are evangelists and so forth. So all of us can play a part and we should be serious about the work that we've been given. We've been given a job of reaching people to deliver them from this kind of suffering on earth and as bad as this is, it's nothing compared to eternal hell. All right, so it should motivate us. Let's move on, verse 13. For verse 13 to verse 21, we're now going to be dealing with the sixth trumpet and the next woe. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. Remember, this is the place of grace and judgment, which is before God. Uh, bear in mind also that the golden altar is the place where the prayers of the saints were offered back there in chapters uh, 5 and 6. So very important. This is an answer to our prayers. We pray, God, when are you going to do something? Here comes the command from the golden altar. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great review Euphrates. I take these to be, again, some kind of super demons. Probably active at some point in the ancient world and imprisoned until now. Verse 15, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. I want you to notice that God does everything right on time. No mistakes, no previous or delayed attacks or efforts. Always on time. They were released to kill a third of mankind. So now between chapter 6 and here, we've had over half of the human race wiped out, and that doesn't even count all of the incidental deaths where it just said many died, right? We're talking about people are saying we need to reduce the population. They tell us the globalists want to reduce the population. God's going to give them what they want, and they're going to be in it. They're not going to like it when it comes. Their idea is we need to reduce the population, and that means you, not them. Well, I think the Lord's going to give them what they're asking for. Verse 16, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. Apparently, when these four angels are released, they are going to lead a massive army of demonic beings. However, we have other passages that also speak of a great invasion from the east. I think I jotted it down here somewhere. 
Time Magazine, May 21, 1965, on page 35, noted the boast that China, you might want to jot that down because you have it in your notes here, China boasted that they had 200 million people under arms. That was recorded in Time Magazine, May 21, 1965. How long ago has that been? How many more people are on the earth now? Back then, there were about 5 billion people on the earth. Today, there are 8. So, things just keep multiplying. Daniel chapter 11, you may want to jot this down on the uh, margin there of your notes. Daniel 11, 40 and 45, talking about the end time battles, speaks of the king of the north coming against the king of the west, uh, we look at this primarily as the Russian forces, if you will, against the forces of Antichrist. And then he is troubled by word of an invasion coming from the east, possibly this very invasion. All of these things link and fit together. So, 200 million horsemen... The horses in the vision, these are obviously not normal. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth and blue, and sulfur yellow. Almost sounds like China right there. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. I've ridden a lot of horses. I never saw one like that. Out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone that came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth. How bad is this? Not just their mouth, their tail. Their mouth and their tail. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. You know, I've known horses that would bite and kick. That's the front and the back, but I've never known any like this. And I want you to notice this in verse 20. By the way, some have tried to suggest whenever John sees these strange armies on the move that he didn't know what uh, fighter jets and combat helicopters and other things look like. I don't think he's talking about human machinery here. I think he's talking about demonic entities, but it's very possible that they are going to indwell the hordes that are going to be coming out of the east. It's happened before, very likely will happen again. But as bad as it is, and this is what I want to leave you with, verse 20 says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. You know what that tells me? They could have. They had the opportunity. They had all the evidence in the world. They could repent, but they did not repent. And what did they not repent of? The works of their hands. What are the works of their hands? It is idols that they worship made of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, and all the way through, and this is going to come up next weekend because so many people are confused in Romans chapter 9 and they get off on the issue of election to salvation. And it's going to shock them because 
the issue of election to salvation doesn't even come up in Romans chapter 9. Doesn't even come up. That's not even the issue. The issue is the election of the nation of Israel to be the vehicle to bring the Savior into the world. That's it. And in order for God to bring the Savior into the world, He had to do some choosing, didn't He? If I have ten couples and I want to bring one person into the world, what am I going to do? Say, all ten of you can have it. It's not going to work. So God has to go through a process of selection. This is my definition of election. Election is a process of selection. And guess what? Selection requires rejection. But what is the purpose of the rejection? For ultimate inclusion. If God had not chosen someone for the Savior to come through, all of the others would have had no opportunity to have eternal life. Right? And when we look at election in Scripture, it is always corporate first. And only individual if you're included in the corporate. That's all coming out in Romans chapter 9 next week, but it's something for us to think about because why will God deal so harshly with Israel? Paul's main point in Romans chapter 9 is that those who were chosen by God to have the covenants, the promises, the fathers, the laws, the blessings, the word of God, and bring Christ into the world, all of the blessings that he gave, what did they do? They rejected it. And why did they reject it? Because they gave in to idolatry. And Paul deals with the issue of idolatry at the beginning of the book to show that it is the thing that is the most affront to God. What are our first two commands? You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make a graven image. Those are the two worst, if you want to put it that way. So Paul starts with it in chapter 1 to explain when he gets to chapter 9, this is what they've done. And you might ask, how did they fall into idolatry? He tells us in Romans chapter 10, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and trying to establish their own righteousness have not accepted the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by works. What was their idol? Their idol was the Torah. Their idol was the law. And they chose the law over Christ. And therefore, they're going to suffer much of the judgments we're seeing here. So, they would not repent of the work of their hands. The demons and idols, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, that behind every idol is a demon. When you go to India, you see a lot of idols. You see idols that are part monkey and part human. You see idols that are part elephant, part human. You see idols that are serpents. You see idols that are many-armed women. You see all kinds. Blue creatures. Paul tells us behind every idol there is a demon. And when you begin to worship that idol, you are in danger of surrendering your soul to that demonic entity. How hard can the human heart be? Having all the truth before them, having the 144,000 Jewish evangelists 
spreading the gospel, having Moses and Elijah, chapter 11, come back and stand in Jerusalem for three and a half years and proclaim the gospel. Their hearts are so hard, they will not turn. Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Acts 17, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. They would not repent. Though they had every opportunity. So that's how hard the human heart can be. And that is one of the reasons for the severity of the judgments we see in Revelation. All right? I'm done for the night. Well, <clears throat> there's there's actually a book I would highly recommend if you're interested. If you've ever struggled over Romans 9, you should get this book. It's, it's only come out within the last year or two. He shows how for 500 years we've been fighting over things in, for, in Romans chapter 9 that are not even Paul's issue. It's so very clear. Uh, it's called The Word of God Has Not Failed. The guy's name is Aaron Sherwood. And what he does is what so few people that study Romans 9 do. He takes the quotes of Paul from the Old Testament. And he says, let's go back and see where this quote comes from. Oh, what was Pharaoh involved in? Pharaoh was involved in idolatry. God's judgment was against the gods of Egypt, you remember. What is God's judgment for getting involved in idolatry? Blindness. Then what does he do? He says to the Jews, you're just like Pharaoh because you're committing idolatry just like he did. And he quotes Moses from Exodus 32 and the time when they got involved in idolatry and so forth. But you'll find it interesting. Aaron Sherwood, the word of God has not failed. Very worthwhile. All right, my voice is about gone. Been a wonderful evening. We had a great baptism. We had a great feast. We've had the word. We are fed spirit and body. And it's time to go home and sleep. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, once again for each one who's come this evening. Father, every life has a precious value in your sight that we cannot even compute. We can't even understand. Only when we look at the cross and we see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for every member of the human race can we begin to understand the love that you have for those that you've created. So, Father, as we have enjoyed such a wonderful banquet tonight, a marvelous baptism, a tremendous feast, wonderful singing, and then time around your word. We're full, uh, we are satisfied, and we are blessed. So as we go to our homes, watch over us, guard and protect us, keep us safe, keep us with our mind fixed on Christ, with a mindset of the Spirit, a mindset of the Word, living our lives in a way that will honor, glorify, and please you, and fulfill the plan you have for us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.